We're on a mission from God. Wendy? So I got that going. Darling? Looks like I picked the wrong week to quit sniffing blue. Light of my life. We enjoy your films. I am a human being. I thought they smelled bad. On the outside. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're re-watching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in real time, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today marks the 40th anniversary of the release of The Jazz Singer on December 19th, 1980. It was written by Herbert Baker and Stephen H. Foreman, based on a play by Samson Rafelson, directed by Richard Fleischer, and uncredited direction from Sidney J. Fury, and released by Associated Film Distribution. This is our second film in a row from Associated Film Distribution after Inside Moves. While working as an advertising executive, Samson Rafelson wrote a short story based on the early life of Al Jolson called Day of Atonement, which he later adapted into the 1925 play The Jazz Singer. The play was then adapted into the 1927 film and actually starred its inspiration Al Jolson. The film is best known for murdering the silent film era as it was the first feature-length film to include synchronized music and dialogue with picture. It essentially tells the same story as this film, except that all of the performances are done in blackface because it was a minstrel show. Have you seen that one? No. I haven't either. Have you seen the one, Richard? The Al Jolson one? Yeah. Uh, I think I saw it in film school. Yeah. As a as just a means of like this is the big one. Yeah. <laughs> it's like it's big for a this lot of is reasons. Important I guess. for some reason. Another important difference uh, occurs at the end of the film, but we'll get to that later. Daryl F. Zanuck won an honorary Academy Award for producing the 1927 film, and it was also nominated for a Best Adapted Screenplay Oscar at the first Academy Award ceremony, but it did not win. Obviously, in hindsight, its celebration of minstrel theater is problematic, and critics seem to disagree on whether the film can be separated from its racist undertones and judged on its own merit. I have to say it would be difficult to see the story as anything but racist if, for the climactic performance, Jess is playing a huge televised concert in blackface and tears are streaming down the faces of his family as they joyfully admit this is where he belongs. <laughs> Which is how the original film ends. The 27 film was parodied first by Tex Avery for a Merry Melodies cartoon called I Love to Singa, which again tells essentially the same story, but starring a family of classically trained musician owls mm -hmm. with the lead huh. character Owl Jolson. Yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. I, I've seen this many times because uh, when I was growing up, I had a few warner brothers vhs tapes yeah and apparently what happened this is actually this is kind of a longer story i'm sorry nope um these were all licensed films that was i can't remember the production the the distributor had it was like just three letters like apd or something like that they they licensed a whole bunch of warner brothers cartoons that no one really cared about like some of them yeah. had bugs and daffy but really it was a lot of merry melodies and yeah. off-brand stuff well all those went into license obscurity and became public domain. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because everyone. So Al Jolson got a lot of play. Yeah. Because everyone forgot about it. Yeah. Like the, no one, no one renewed the license on all this stuff. So it went into public domain. And I think they, I think they have since tried to get a lot of it back. Is um, that possible? Can you take something in public domain I, I, and I reclaim it? I, I think that there are some instances where they, where they do it. And I know that Disney keeps like pushing copyright law. Yeah. yeah, like to, to its breaking point. Yeah, it's just like now things are copywritten for 345 years, you know, after so. the death of the creator. Right. Yeah. Um. So we, we, since he's Whatever frozen, we have to do to keep Mickey. <laughs> That's why we froze Walt because now yeah. he can never die, really. Um. But anyway, so that was the story. Was uh that I saw a lot of this because I had these tapes. Yeah. Uh, so I've seen that particular short many times. But Al Jolson just wants to sing jazz, and his family mm -hmm. is a bunch of classical musicians, so they're not down with it. I love to sing about the moon and the June and the spring. I love to sing about a sky of blue or a T42, anything with a swing to when I love you. The 27 film is also referenced in Singing in the Rain when the studio is panicking about its release and transitioning all of their films to talkies. A remake of The Jazz Singer was first attempted in 1952 
by director Michael Curtis, starring Danny Thomas and Peggy Lee with Edward Franz as the aging Cantor father. Seven years later, a TV version was broadcast, again featuring Edward Franz as the father, but this time replacing Danny Thomas with Jerry Lewis. Oh, God. No, thank you. The most recent and best-known parody of the jazz singer story, of course, comes in the form of Simpsons character Krusty the Clown. In Season 3, Episode 6, Like Father, Like Clown, we learn Krusty, born Herschel Schmoikel Pinchus Yeruchim Krustovsky, is the son of Rabbi Hyman Krustovsky, who disowned him for pursuing a career in comedy. Yeah. Jackie Mason voiced Rabbi Krustovsky for this performance and won a Primetime Emmy Award in 1992. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> Wonderful. I remember that episode. At one point in the episode, Rabbi Krustovsky laments, Oh, if you were a musician or a dancer, this I could forgive, but, but, but this... <laughs> Producer Jerry Leader was inspired to remake The Jazz Singer after seeing Neil Diamond in a 1976 television special from the Greek Theater in Los Angeles and spurred on by the success of A Star is Born in 76. The project was initially brought to MGM in the fall of 77, but Stephen H. Foreman, who's credited with the adaptation, said MGM executives were somewhat anxious about the movie being too Jewish, and the <laughs> studio finally rejected the project. It was resurrected by AFD, Associated Film Distribution, and planned for a Christmas 79 release, but suffered many delays stemming from rights issues and Neil Diamond's back surgery that year. Part of his contract also dictated that he would have the right to finish all of the songs for the soundtrack before production began, so that kept pushing oh, back Jesus. their start date. Barry Manilow was briefly considered to replace him. Jacqueline Bissett was a top contender for the female lead, but her asking price of $1 million plus 8% of the gross left her completely out of consideration. Deborah Raffin, who we had earlier this year in Touched by Love, was cast with a week's notice for a quarter million dollars, but left the project due to conceptual changes, which really shouldn't be happening within a week of production. Oh, <laughs> right? <laughs> That's great. In the 27 version, the titular jazz singer still has a mom, but no wife or love interest. There's almost no female roles in the first film. Apparently, in the draft that Raffin signed up for, the part of the manager required singing from the character, described in press releases as a Las Vegas-type singer, but when Raffin left, Liza Minnelli... Cher and Donna Summer were considered as replacements. Eventually, they landed on Director Fury's first choice, and yeah, I'm just going to call him Director Fury, of <laughs> Lucy Arnaz. But she wasn't keen on singing either, and the character was changed again. Apparently, for Sidney J. Fury's duration as director, he was kind of bending to the wills of the cast. Yeah. So anytime someone said, I don't feel like singing, he'd be like, okay, we'll just make everyone sit down for a few hours and yeah. I'll rewrite the whole movie. And he and Neil Diamond would say, I think it should go like this. And he's like, okay, cool. Let me change the whole movie. Everyone just wait for a second. And that kept happening. Director Fury was amicably, quote unquote, amicably terminated <laughs> halfway through production after disagreements with producers on how the second half of the film should unfold, a hiatus between directors lasted two weeks, but many expected the film to shut down completely. So the big shootout scene was cut yes. and the new ending rewritten. They were like, we're not going to kill this many horses in this movie. I mean, I'm already surprised because I haven't seen the first one either, the original either. So right. I'm, I'm already surprised at how different it is because if the love interest i mean the love interest was the central plot point of this right. entire movie and then you take that completely out of it like then what else does just, the movie have it's 100 <laughs> family versus career that the plots weren't that complex i guess in that, the 20s that, make, and 30s. that makes sense i'm like that just doesn't sound like much of a movie to me right there's no b story because you're like can people follow an a story so you don't bother to put anything else in it. Well, to be fair, this was the first time they're actually talking at them. That's so, true. It's a lot to take in. You know, without that, maybe they can't follow a B story. <laughs> <laughs> I used to be able to talk in the theater, but now there are other people talking. <laughs> it's the movie. <laughs> Sir Lawrence Olivier was overheard at a New York City restaurant shitting all over the script in the middle of production, and his review was leaked to tabloids. He was threatened with lawsuits until he revised his comments at the end of production, that he fully supported the picture and wrote replacement director Richard Fleischer a personal apology. Though the film retained the title of the original film, it contains not a single jazz song. <laughs> this is my problem. Yes. That's your only problem with <laughs> no, this No, no, no. I have plenty of problems with this film, but my primary complaint coming into this review was, he is this not is a not singer. a jazz singer. There is no jazz song in this 
at all. Neil Diamond was nominated for Best Actor, Musical or Comedy, and Best Original Song at the Golden Globes, and Worst Actor at the Razzies, <laughs> alongside Lawrence Olivier's nomination as Worst Supporting Actor. The father and son team both got nominations. I mean, I'm going to say- And he, they both won. They won their Razzies. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I don't think his acting was bad. Neil Diamond's? Yeah. I think eh. I think it was passable. His singing is great. I mean, he's a very talented singer. I mean, the Razzies are a terrible idea, but he wasn't good in this movie. And if you'll recall, Olivier shared his award with Juan or John Adams, the kid from Gloria. The first phrase spoken by Al Jolson in the original film... Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You ain't heard nothing yet. ...was voted as the 71st best quote by the American Film Institute. We hear the instrumental for Neil Diamond's song America over Black... The name Neil Diamond shows up as an actor, and then Laurence Olivier's name shows up as an actor, which tells you how weird this movie's going to be right off the bat. <laughs> we get a lot of stock footage of various nationalities interacting in marketplaces in New York. In one shot, the crowd looks very thick, and then a bus passes through the middle of it, and forced perspective makes it look like a bunch of people just got smashed by a bus. We see an African-American man, Bubba played by Franklin A.J., checking his watch and then heading into a temple across the street. From the back of the temple, he's waving to get the attention of Jess Robin, who is singing in Hebrew at the front of the congregation next to his father, played by Laurence Olivier. The way he's made up here, Laurence Olivier kind of reminds me of Art Carney's character from Rhodey earlier this year. Yeah, totally. Jess starts singing a little bit faster to try and get this over with so he can leave with his friend. It's bothering everyone that he's going so fast and well, they're all tripping up over the lyrics. Yeah, because everybody, it's not just him singing, everybody's Everyone's singing, singing at and the so same speed, yeah. he's going ahead of them and it's weird. When his father asks what's going on, he blames a favor that he promised his wife Rivy. On the way out, he asks her to cover for him, promising to make it up to her, and he leaves with Bubba. A couple other African-American men join them. And Jess realizes as they're heading into the Cinderella Club that it is a black club, and they tell him not to worry about it. On their way through the building from the back door, they encounter exclusively African-American characters who all seem shocked to find a white man in this building. Jess is nervous about going on stage here and suggests they try it without him. They tell him that someone is here to scout them and was promised four people, but their fourth guy got busted and he's stuck in jail. They get a cue from the club owner that it's time to hit the stage. Hey, blood, plasma, whatever you want me to call you, brother. If you don't get your three, four black asses out here, I'm going to have to put on another act. But please tell me that ain't no white man. Yeah, because it makes it totally acceptable to do blackface as long as the black guy asked you to do it. Right. We cut to them on stage and Neil Diamond is instantly in blackface with an Afro wig. He's also making extremely awkward faces, and even in 1980, I feel like everybody knew this was the most racist part of the original jazz singer. So mm -hmm. even if you're going to call this an homage to the first movie and only do this one scene of blackface, I feel like you're better off not doing it at all. The audience instantly latches onto the music, and they're all jumping around and dancing to it. We see Ernie Hudson in a booth with his friend, rocking out. We haven't seen him since the Octagon, where he was sorely underused. Of the entire crowd, only Ernie Hudson seems to notice that Jess's hands are white as he's clapping to the beat on stage, <laughs> and he starts pointing it out to the people seated around him. They finish the song to raucous applause, but Hudson interrupts everyone's applause to point out that Neil Diamond is in fact a white man in blackface, and the crowd turns on him instantly. Ernie Hudson rushes the stage, and his bandmates try to protect him, but Neil Diamond punches Ernie Hudson to start the fight. Mm-mm. Jess continues beating up black people in a black nightclub wearing blackface. We cut to a police precinct the next day where Jess's father has been called to bail out his son. He tells them he's here for Jess Rabinovich, and the man at the desk tells him the closest they have is Jess Robin. When they're getting processed, they start asking each other where Rivka is to thank her for bailing them out, and they turn around and realize that his father just bailed them out. Bailed Did them all out? Yeah, all, all of them, because he actually knows all of them. Uh, Dad is upset because Jess lied to him about where he was the night before. All Jess gets out of his father is... It's not tough enough being a Jew. Which I think is a reference to what remains of the black face on his skin. Later we see Jess enter the temple again where his wife Rivka is teaching Hebrew songs. Jess knocks on her classroom window to draw her attention. He asks why she didn't bail them out after he called her, and we learn that they live with his father, and he woke up for the same phone call and went to the jail himself. 
That afternoon, Jess tries to explain himself to his father, his reasoning for shortening his name, what he's been doing at night. His father is disappointed in him because a Rabinovich has been the cantor at this synagogue for five generations, and he reminds his father that he is a cantor, but he can't survive on a cantor's salary, not even if tradition demands it. Jess's father is upset at the implication that God doesn't pay well enough. God doesn't pay so good. Rifkin and I want our own place. We God want to have babies. How can I so afford good? that, Pop? What you owe to God, you can never repay. Never. Never. Right, okay. Having argued enough, Jess tells his father that he gives up. He'll stay an assistant cantor and do everything he says and everyone will be happy. We see him meet up with Bubba again after some time apart, and he learns that they're headed to Los Angeles for a gig singing backup. He tells Jess he should come with him, but he seems committed to the synagogue now. At night, he tells Rivka that Bubba's headed to Los Angeles, and she makes fun of his dreams again and then tries to initiate sex when she thinks that Papa is asleep. Jess is not interested. In the middle of the night, Jess gets up and starts practicing guitar in the kitchen. He's scribbling lyrics on a notepad while he works. The next day, we see him at the synagogue at a piano while children sing Hebrew beside him. When the song ends, the closest kid asks Jess why he has to sing this at his bar mitzvah, and he says, you know what, just do it for your folks. Sometimes you have to do things for your parents. And the kid's like, well, I thought the whole point of a bar mitzvah is that I'm a man. I don't have yeah. to do things for my parents anymore. It's just like, whatever, kid, go away. An older rabbi character wanders up and thanks Jess for making the right decision to stay here. Alone at the piano, Jess starts playing an original song called Love on the Rocks. Love on the rocks, no big When suddenly the rabbi pops out again and tells him there's a long-distance phone call for him. It's Bubba, and he asks if Jess is sitting down, so he sits down in the phone booth. <laughs> he tells Jess that he's played the demo tape for Paul Rossini, and they loved it. Paul Rossini? Who's Paul Rossini? That's Keith Lennox's producer, brother. Keith Lennox? Yeah, we do a backup. Mr. Platinum himself. Can you get to that? Anyway, Rossini played Lennox some of your tape. Bottom line is, Keith Lennox wants to record Love on the Rocks. Bubba tells him that the producers have agreed to fly him out, all expenses paid for two weeks with his wife, but they have 24 hours to get there. By the way, just over Bubba's shoulder here is a billboard out of focus for another 1980 film. Did you catch it? Oh, I didn't. Did nope. you see that? Fatso. Uh -huh. Poster for Fatso in the background here. Jess tells his wife that he got the call to head out to Los Angeles and that he has to go. He asks if she's coming with, and she makes it clear she is not coming with. In response, he makes it clear that that's not a deal breaker for him, yeah. and she's instantly crying about him achieving his dream and leaving her for a mere two weeks. Yeah, he. although he, he could have phrased it better when he says, I'm going with or without you. Right. And I was like, there's a nicer way to say that. But it's also, these people want to pay me a lot of money to do what I love mm -hmm. the most. Would you like to join me for that for free? Would you like to take a two-week vacation for free and everything's paid for? And she says, no. I want you to stay here with me and be sad. <laughs> and he's like, okay, well, I'm not going to do that. So have a great time. I mean, I, I totally get where you're coming from. I agree with you. Yeah. But she has different life goals than him. Right. And that's fine to say, I'm not coming with, but you go. You have a great time and do what you're going to do. It's a completely different thing to say, no. I don't stay want here you to go. Yeah, for no, less for money sure. and be sad. No, 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 for sure. I yeah. agree that she shouldn't be turning him down, but he, they should both be respecting the other one's wishes right. of what they want. Yeah. It's kind of weird how much they want us to dislike this character already, though, considering she's his wife. Like, you would think that they had some kind of a relationship with each other where they cared about each other's feelings. And none of that is coming through so far. I didn't know that they were married until they were in bed together. Apparently, neither did the actress because Sidney Fury kept rewriting it so much where they weren't married yet, but they were on the verge of getting married to they were married or they'd been married for a long time. And so the actress was getting really frustrated because she's like, I can't keep track of if I'm even married to the character I'm talking to because you keep changing things. Yeah. At another party at the synagogue, Jess tries to tell his father about his plans in Los Angeles. Instead, his father gets distracted with some horrific story from their past, but we only get a vague outline of it. Oh, how I would love to dance with your mother. Oh, she was so full of life. Papa, I gotta and talk to you about something. That awful day when you were playing in the streets, 
and there came the bullets and the bomb and the terrorists. Papa, come on, come on. What? What happened? <laughs> yeah. Let's never elaborate on this at all. <laughs> so it sounds like they were literally bombed, potentially for being Jewish, and that his wife died that way? I don't know what happened. I don't know where this wife went. We never fleshed this out at all. And now the father is thoroughly depressed. So Jess tells him, hey, by the way, I'm accepting a job in Los Angeles. Papa seems certain that he will never come back, but surprisingly gives his blessing sort of. Yeah, I, I was like, oh, okay. This, yeah. this was a much easier. I thought this was going to be the harder hurdle to get over. Yeah. yeah, he's definitely more thoughtful of his son's wishes for his own life than his wife is. But he, at the last second, just says, if you're going to leave me and go to Los Angeles forever, promise me you'll be careful out there. And that's the end of that conversation, basically. Suddenly, Jess is leading a band performance of Hava Nagila in the room. Rivka sees that Jess has told his father and seems to give her blessing as well. Like she comes over to hug him and says something muted to him Mm -hmm. before the scene ends. But it seems like both of them are okay with him leaving. We see Jess's plane land at LAX. A woman's holding a sign that says Jess Robin and she's just pointing it at every rabbi that walks by expecting like, oh, these guys are definitely the person I'm here to pick up. I mean, I was expecting someone a little more religious looking. No, I'm just a cantor. Oh, do I call you cantor or father? (laughs) Jess. Okay. This is Molly Bell from Keith Lennox Productions. They bond over the long last names that they don't go by. He tells her his is Rabinovich, which doesn't even begin to compare with her name, Belengo Cavela. That's her last name. At the curb, a limousine pulls up to collect them, and we hear the LAX PA system recite, the white zone is for loading and unloading <laughs> passengers only. There is no parking in the white zone. Yeah. Which is the second time we've heard this voice this year after the same actor provided the voice for Airplane from Zucker Abrams and Zucker. I'm guessing he's not credited in this one. <laughs> I'm guessing not. The white zone is for immediate loading and unloading of passengers only. No parking. We cut right to the studio where Keith Lennox has his band playing Love on the Rocks at at least double speed from what Jess played earlier. Jess tells the men in the booth that it's supposed to be a ballad, and they tell him, yeah, this is how he made millions of dollars, so this is how he's going to do it. And the only reason you're here is to change the lyrics so they don't sound so terrible at double speed, basically. In the studio... Lennox is complaining that they're all going too slow. His band is not keeping up with him. Again, Jess bothers the men in the booth that this is supposed to be a ballad, and they say, yeah, go tell Lennox that. I don't, this is, I'm not in control of this. He's directing this. So he actually goes into the booth and tells Lennox, hey, this is supposed to be a ballad. Do you mind if I play it for you so you understand the pace that it's supposed to be at? And, of course, one would expect this whole situation to backfire, but it really doesn't at mm-hmm. first. Lennox is being surprisingly patient with him, uh, for a stranger that just popped into his booth. He I mean, doesn't even know that this guy wrote the song. Is he? I wasn't clear on that. If he was just being like, fine, show me what it's supposed well, to be Well, I feel like. like he could have been angrier about it. Like, who the fuck are you? What are you doing in here? Goodbye. Yeah. But, but instead it, he's like, yeah, sure. Why don't you play it for me? But it was still like a go ahead and fail. No, yeah. go fail. Yeah. But Jess sits down and he plays it. Um, the band is keeping the pace that he wants for the song. And... In the booth, everyone can tell this that this is a great version of the song. This is the way it should be played. But Lennox is just scribbling notes on paper without paying attention to the performance in the background. At the end of Jess's take of the song, Lennox says, That was awesome. Now you take those four clowns with you and you're all fired. And so basically he was like, Yeah, you come here, you you play this song, and then the guys who brought you here are all fired with you, and I'm not going to do this song anymore. And he turns to his friends and he's like, does that mean we're fired? And they're all like smiling nodding and nodding and- <laughs> like, yep, yeah, yeah, that's what that means. We're all done because they don't give a shit. They don't want to be here with this Lennox asshole. Now it's Molly's turn to tell the guys in the booth that Jess is right and the song is a ballad. Again, he says, why don't you tell Keith Lennox that? Because so far that hasn't worked out well for people. I'm not going to be the one to tell him how he's supposed to do this song. And then we see Molly follow them outside because she also has been fired. As if the blackface wasn't bad enough. We cut to someone's home. I guess this is her house where everyone went after they got fired. And they're all singing and dancing as Jess performs a song about the Robert E. Lee. Wrong, 
Jess and Molly dance very flirtatiously throughout the song. <laughs> you know, that song really yeah. inspires that. <laughs> Gets them real hot. <laughs> Jess steps out the back door of the home and walks out to the beach for some evening contemplation. I was trying to make a joke about she looks like she's going to surrender her body. <laughs> oh. Because Robert E. <laughs> All right. But she does. Yeah. She it's does. a regular Appomattox up Coming in here. Up. <laughs> she offers it up. <laughs> Molly follows him out and tosses him the recording of his performance today that she stole from the studio, basically. Jess talks about his friction with his family and his career as a cantor in New York. And Molly shares about her father, who wanted to be a concert pianist, but eventually settled for sound engineer and probably died wishing he'd tried harder at the piano. Jess asks what he would need to get started here and she says well first you need a manager and then you need a place to stay since he's married she suggests he shouldn't stay with her he should stay with bubba but she could manage his career because she's freshly out of work we cut to molly and a friend standing at a parking meter in what looks like the santa monica promenade to me and her friend points out a famous producer walking by. She also happens to know that he books the openers for Zany Gray, and Zany Gray just lost his opener, so they need somebody desperately. Molly follows this guy to his car and gets in just as he does. Pretend you don't know me. I don't. She puts her hand in her pocket to mimic the shape of a gun and demands that he turn on the radio while he tries to hand over all of his money. She tells him to turn the radio way up, and then takes her hand out of her pocket to reveal that the gun is actually a demo tape. The two of them listen to Love on the Rocks, and then he throws her out of the car because he can't book someone from a tape. He needs to see them in person. Yeah, but he's still more agreeable than you would imagine somebody yeah. who's almost pretend getting mugged. Yeah. Especially be. someone who then was forced to listen to a Neil Diamond song. No, <laughs> he seems to have enjoyed it. The songs aren't bad. No, they're not. They're not bad. I'm just picking on him. Back at Molly's apartment, they're waiting on a phone call to find out if Jess has booked a gig at a Venice blues club. He plays a song on the guitar called Hello Again, Hello. Hello again, hello. I just called to say hello. And she's blown away by this relatively mediocre song compared to what we've heard thus far in the movie. Jess says that he's giving up for the night and starts packing his things. And Molly says, you're going to get that job at the Blues Club. And then I'll find a way to get that big shot producer to see you there. And when he still tries to leave, she makes another offer. I know how to get you to stay. I'll give you my body. Hello? Hello again. See? She surrendered. She did. Yep. <laughs> I just offered you my body. When he doesn't respond, she asks if he'd rather have a pizza, and he tells her it's probably time for him to leave. Not her house, but the state. Like, he's ready to go back to New York. This this is a failed experiment. The phone rings right then, and of course Bubba says he got the job at the Blues Club. He's set for 10.30 Saturday night, and during Jess's set, Mr. Biggs, that's the producer's name, doesn't look very impressed with the music and leaves before the song is even over. He hated me. No, he hates loud music. You he loved. You open for Zadie Gray next week. The blues club that he just came out of is like a half block away from the United States of America where Marilyn worked and fade to black. <laughs> Excellent. Jess calls his wife again and tells her how much closer to his dream he is now. And she's like, that's great. You should move back to New York and quit your job and be sad with me. You're never going to make it, Dewey. <laughs> I, I, I have made it. I made it. <laughs> you don't want any of this stuff, Dewey. Oh, man, that, that movie is so great. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Dewey Cox, if you're curious. Check it out. It's so funny. She says she doesn't have the heart to tell Papa and then puts him on the phone for some reason. Papa's much cooler about all this, again, than Rivka is, but he still looks on the verge of tears when he hangs up the phone. But he, at least he's like, oh, that's great. Good job. I hope everything works out for you. Papa asks why she didn't go to Los Angeles since she's been invited multiple times now. And she says that a husband's place is with his wife. And he's like, right, and a wife's place is with her husband. Couldn't you also go out there? Or is there, are you more excited about teaching these kids Hebrew songs than you are about him achieving his life's goal? It, yeah, and, and the, the answer, answer to that is, is yes. yes. Yeah. Very she would rather yes. do this bland thing <laughs> than see her husband excited about anything. I mean, but to be fair, like, that's the life she thought she married into. She married right. a yeah. cantor thinking that was the life she was getting i i get that i don't understand the other side of it why did he marry her if he knew that what he was getting was 
milk toast lady <laughs> who <laughs> who enjoys being sad and might as well have married his dad. That's I mean, I don't know why he married her. It, he, yeah. I guess he but was. But so many movies, you I, just have to accept that I mean, these people it, started out together. No, but I mean, his dad is a, you know, a, a rabbi, right? Well, he's, he's the cantor. A, his dad's a cantor. Yes. Okay. Currently. I don't know. Can rabbis marry? I don't know. I know very yes. little. Rabbis can't. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Anyways, his Trust dad. Trust me. My first wife was a rabbi. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? But anyways, I'm just saying, he grew up in this tradition. Right. I think he was carrying on what he thought was his duty in the family. Right. And and putting aside these silly dreams until they started to become Bubbling real. Bubbling up. Yeah. Yeah. We cut to the night of the show, and Jess Robin takes the stage to open for Zany Gray. He starts slow on a harmonica, and two notes in, he has a heckler in the audience. Is that all you can play, turkey? Jess quickly turns the crowd around, and suddenly Rivka shows up in the audience and finds Molly in the crowd. It's understandably awkward. Jess tells me you've been a great help to him. I mean, every time we talk, it's Molly did this and Molly did that. That's very nice of him. Please forgive me, but 3,000 miles away, you begin to wonder if he's telling me everything Molly did. I offered him my body once. He settled for a pizza. (laughs) As she watches the show, Rivka finally... Wait a second, though. She was strangely okay with this. She laughs about it. She's like, that's funny. She's like, ha ha, yeah, that's funny. Which is weird. Like, I get that you're okay now that you know that your husband didn't cheat on you, even though he had the opportunity to. But be mad at her. Yeah, well, did she... Well, I guess she did know at the time that he was married. Because yes. he oh, mentioned yeah. his oh, wife yes. before they went back and into the house. And she even said, don't stay with me. Yeah. You know? And then That's for true. some reason, she has this turn where she's suddenly but she like, also, oh, yeah, by the way, never mind. You and should I, definitely I take I think me. she's she's building a back door into the offer, but she says it in a jokey voice so that if he shuts her down, she can be like, "I was obviously, I was joking. You're married. Like, yeah. that's not. Because she's just like, I'll offer you my body. <laughs> <laughs> like, as a joke. And then if he said... Okay, let's fuck. Then she'd be like, great, let's do it. I was like, okay. <laughs> but if he said no, she could just be like, yeah, was, that was a joke. I feel like this is probably also your strategy. <laughs> definitely. This is what I do. Why? I was definitely kidding about that. <laughs> I was just kidding. Everything Everything I said before was a joke. <laughs> what happened before when I said I love you, that was a joke. He says he says there's three kids into your marriage, by the way. <laughs> I was just kidding. I was just kidding. I don't know why these kids are all hanging out. As she watches the show, Rivka finally realizes how difficult it would be for him to leave all this, and Molly asks, why does he have to? I don't understand. Despite what she just told Molly, Rivka suggests to Jess that they return to New York and forget about all this. <laughs> forget about <laughs> your like, dream. What? You just said you understand it now, and how could he possibly leave this behind? And then you're like, by the way, leave this behind. And then he says, I don't believe it. This is the biggest night of my life, and you want to drag me back to Elridge Street. It's where we belong. It's it's what we are. He tells her he's not going back. She gives him an ultimatum. If he doesn't come back to New York with her right now with zero regrets, then they're done. <laughs> Which is like totally impossible. It's it's an impossible request to say, not only do you have to abandon your dream and come back with me, but you can't even be, you're not even allowed to be internally sad about it. Because then I'm going to feel guilty for making you quit your dream. Why? Why would you feel guilty at all if you know it's wrong? Just don't do it. He heads back into his dressing room party and he invites her, but she walks down the hall and out of his life and he half-heartedly calls after her. Stop, don't, come back. But he's better off without her. This makes sense. He finds Molly hosing down a boat in a harbor several days later. She says that she and her friend Tommy are about to set sail for Acapulco, but good luck with your deal. He starts to leave, but then he comes back with more information. He lets her know that he and Rivka have separated. And then he admits that working with her these past few weeks, he's grown connected to her. And he isn't comfortable with her leaving for Acapulco with this random guy on a boat. Molly asks Tommy if he'd be disappointed if she didn't go to Acapulco. And he says, Acapulco? We're going to Catalina for the day. Then Molly does this little mutley laugh thing where she's (laughs) holding the hose and she's like. (laughs) But 
But are they still a couple? Like, who who is this guy? I think it's just a friend of hers. And okay. they were just going to go to Catalina for the day. All right. And she was like, I'm going to pretend this is my boyfriend so that I can get away from this married dude. And then mm-hmm. when she found out he wasn't married, she's like, okay, now I can reveal to him my, my ruse. I don't appreciate your ruse, ma'am. <laughs> your clever attempt to trick me. <laughs> I always think of that scene when I hear that word. Yeah. Uh, what is, what is she? I don't even know what that's from. It's from Clerks. What is she? She's trying to... She asks him what he thinks about a movie, and he's not even looking, and he yeah, tells her and that, that it's What great. about this one? Oh, that <laughs> That's sucks. the same movie. <laughs> Jess snags the hose that she's holding, and he starts to spray her with it as revenge for this joke. We see Jess and Molly walking along the beach. At her apartment, she prepares a nice ham dinner, <laughs> and then he bites his lip wondering how to explain the problem to her. Before he has to say anything, it occurs to her, and she covers her face in embarrassment. Uh, I like it. I, I can only imagine what my mood was when I was writing this note, <laughs> but my note is we have a montage of dates and shit. <laughs> yeah, it's perfect. <laughs> You're jealous. That was your mood. Yeah. You wanted to be with him. <laughs> no, one so, makes, no one makes me sacrilegious ham. <laughs> sacrilegious. <laughs> <laughs> we get a montage of muted Jess and Molly working on an album of his music. We see them riding a tandem bike, which is required in any 80s montage of a relationship. (laughs) And then back in the apartment doing some sort of a religious ceremony where she wears a cloth over her head. And then he touches her lips with wine before kissing her. I think this is like a homebrew wedding or something. And then they have sex on the floor in front of the fireplace. We cut back to the studio where he's recording Hello Again. At the end of the song, they share a very long kiss. Back at her home, we see a taxi pull up and Papa gets out. No palazzos, no gondolas. They call these Spanish. Yeah, it's California, Papa. Yeah. Papa seems genuinely impressed with the apartment, though. He demands that Jess come home with him now and insists that God spared them from the horrors of the Holocaust, specifically so they could be cantors forever and never pursue their dreams. Jess tells his father that he's not coming back and that he needs to do things his own way because he's tried living up to Papa's expectations and he couldn't do it. His father asks if going his own way means leaving his wife, and before Jess can fully explain their marriage difficulties, Molly walks in. Papa is so disappointed to find another woman here that he tears a part of his clothes and disowns Jess. Papa cries a lot and runs screaming from Jess's home. What was that all about? When a Jew mourns someone didn't, they tear a piece of their clothes. Who's dead? But where does he go? <laughs> just uh, hopefully the taxi's still there. But yeah. if not, you just have to. He just comes right back in and says, "Hold on, I have to call the taxi company." <laughs> but I'm still upset, and I still don't have a son. Yeah, we get a scene of Jess recording for his next album and repeatedly interrupting takes to chew out his backup band, including Bubba, for losing the groove. He's very grumpy and mean to everyone. Between takes, Bubba has a quick chat with Molly, who tells him cryptically that another rabbit bit the dust. Another rabbit bit the dust. <laughs> Congratulations. Of your mother. Which somehow Bubba is able to translate into, I'm pregnant. I don't know what that Yeah, I, don't, I didn't get that either. He advises her against telling Jess right now, because it would probably break his heart to learn that Bubba impregnated his girlfriend. No, I'm just kidding. It's, it's his kid. He's just being a jerk right now. What's going on? Hold it, hold it, hold it. What happened to the groove? What happened to the groove, guys? You doing this on purpose or what is it? You trying to make me look bad? Molly finally steps in in defense of the band, but Jess doesn't want to hear about it. She blames his confrontation with his father, and he leaves the stage. Outside, he walks into traffic, forcing people to slam on their brakes to not hit him, and then gets in his car and tries to run over other people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like an asshole. As he skids away, his car finally breaks down, hours later in the middle of the desert and he gets out to start walking which is probably for the best because the police are looking for the driver of this car right he walks for 40 years through (laughs) the desert no that's not true we see him taking buses and hitchhiking across the country he winds up in a bar somewhere in el dorado i guess um we see that on a bus somewhere so maybe that's where he is maybe not he's bearded now and he's asking for a job the owner asks for a sample of his piano work and specifically requests You are my sunshine. My daddy told me that one. You are my sunshine. This one. Yeah, that's my only sunshine. You make me happy when 
and skies are gray, you know words. On the strength of this audition, the guy offers him a job on the spot, and we cut right to him performing for a packed house, but for some reason, still playing You Are My Sunshine like it's an eight-year-old's mm-hmm. birthday party. I, I like how he convinces them, though. It's like, you, he's singing the song You Are My Sunshine. He's like, you, you know, know the, the words. words. <laughs> Come on, <laughs> sing you? over me for the second half. Because I don't remember how the second part yeah. goes. I'm going to skip some words in the second half because you're singing now. Okay, I'm sorry. I have to interject. I just Googled the rabbit thing. <laughs> And I'm yeah. really disturbed by it. Okay, this is a known phrase? I Okay, so I found this. Yeah, it, it was actually kind of difficult to find out. So um, I'm, I'm on a pregnancy website here that's okay. talking about funny ways to announce you're pregnant. And somebody used another rabbit bites the dust. And it's because, as, as this person quotes, in the 50s, when you went to a doctor to find out if you were pregnant, the way that they did it was to inject your urine into the rabbit the woman's urine into the rabbit and and if the rabbit died you were pregnant they would kill the rabbit okay but if the rabbit's ovaries were swollen after they killed it it meant you were pregnant whoa (laughs) that's insane Man, home pregnancy tests must have been really weird in the 50s yeah. when they send you a you rabbit. You have one of those there overzealous ladies that's like, look, and there's three rabbits on the bathroom counter. <laughs> They're just laid <laughs> it's just over. Like, look like at just... these huge rabbit ovaries, sweetie. <laughs> we we're going to have so many babies. <laughs> Literally, I, I don't know. This is a comment on a pregnancy website. I'm just yeah. saying. I mean, it has to be. There's. I'm calling that. That's 100% real. So, but wouldn't a rabbit bite the dust even if you weren't pregnant? Because it's still correct. The test. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so, so, hey, guess what? A rabbit bit the dust. So I'm either pregnant or not pregnant. Either way, I killed a rabbit. I claimed a rabbit's life. Filled it with urine. <laughs> I peed into a rabbit. <laughs> what the fuck is wrong with you? It's science. <laughs> How did someone figure that out? I've been injecting pee into things for years. <laughs> Finally, that's a part. <laughs> Whoa, look what happened to this rabbit. Oh, my God. These ovaries look bigger than that rabbit's if ovaries. I been pregnant when I was injecting urine, we'd never figured this out. Wow. Crazy coincidence. Somehow, Bubba is able to find him here. But he gets away without having to elaborate exactly how this is even possible in 1980. It's not like someone tagged him on a Facebook post. He just says, <laughs> One musician can always find him. It's like, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? That's not a thing. You <laughs> see, I take your urine. <laughs> I inject it into a rabbit. I've been collecting. He's in El Dorado. <laughs> Perfect. That's what the rabbit told me before it died. Jess asks if Bubba brought a specific message about Molly or his father, but it turns out he's just here to announce the birth of Jess's son. How long has he been gone? Did he just disappear for a whole year to play piano in a bar in the middle of nowhere? What an asshole. He's a dick. He is the biggest dick in the world. That's crazy. The end of this movie makes me a crazy person. We see him arriving at the beach house under hello again, again. (laughs) Jess finds Molly and his son Charlie Parker Rabinovich on the beach we see Mr. Gibbs getting into his fancy car at the end of a work day and Molly is in his passenger seat again she tells him hey guess what Jess is back and we're ready to perform as the opener for Zany Gray's upcoming special Mr. Gibbs is obviously not interested because he confirms here that Jess disappeared without explanation for a year while preparing for last year's special, Molly insists that Gibbs owes it to him because the album went gold, even if it was over a year ago. She tells him that it probably paid for this fancy car. The fancy car that, by the way, he leaves unlocked in this parking lot. Because yep. she's in the back seat this time. Disease. She's asking for one song, but Gibbs eventually relents, offering her one two and a half minute song. She argues for three and eventually somehow talks him into three and a half minutes. Weirdly, though, he doesn't bother to throw in any kind of a threat if Jess doesn't show up again. I feel like that was necessary. Mm-hmm. By the way, if this happens again, not only am I never booking him for anything, but we're going to sue him for lots of money. Yeah. Because he's wasting our time. Yeah. But her line in the car where, I forget what he says. He says something like, being, something about being upset with again. And she's like, I love him. And I'm just like, I just want to strangle her. Yeah, he says, I hate him. And then she says, but I love him. Yeah. 
And he's just doing it as a personal favor for her because he can tell that she's genuinely interested in this guy. Yeah, that's not how this works. Nope. We cut to a rehearsal performance just about to end. Jess asks if they have any time to do more piano work, but the guy running the rehearsal says that they'll have to do it the day of the performance. Someone asks why they can't just do it tomorrow, and it turns out tomorrow is Yom Kippur. If you're Jewish or know anybody who's Jewish, you can leave now. Jess notices Leo, a member of the congregation of his synagogue in New York, has come to these rehearsals. He's here to deliver a message that Papa is having health issues. He has high blood pressure. He's not doing well. And for five generations now, a member of the Rabinovich family has been the cantor singing songs on Yom Kippur, but the doctors are telling Papa that he can't sing this year, which means that the responsibility falls to Jess. But we just covered that he has the day off. So there's no issue at all. Doesn't matter. There's no conflict here. He can go and do it and then come back in time for the show. Yeah, I was so confused at this part. I'm just like, what? why what's the problem like I, I didn't understand what was going on like i was just certain- like but i'm trying to be a dick to my father but i was yeah. certain that it was going to be this like life-changing choice between going and singing the service or singing the show that is your last chance right. of stardom but that yeah. really wasn't what it was no it's not but so my note here before i had done my research was why not force the show to be on yom kippur and make him choose between his faith and his career isn't that the whole point that you've been building up to the entire time yeah is that he has to choose between yeah. his family and his religion and making a lot of money and being famous and that's how the original ends yom kippur is the night of the concert in the original film yeah and so he skips it to go and do this thing for his father which is such a bigger point to make yeah than to be like no but i'm trying to be petty Mm-hmm. Why should I fly to New York and then fly back and do both things comfortably? It, it's like if Green Goblin had thrown the bus full of people and Mary Jane off that bridge on two separate days. Yeah. And Spider-Man didn't have to choose. He was just like, oh, I'll save these people today and then I'll just come back tomorrow and I'll save Mary Jane. It'll be easy. Jess tells Leo he's not going to do it. And Molly, who overheard the conversation, starts arguing with him about it. Apparently, she wants him to blow up and walk out of the studio and disappear for another year of their child's life but she's forcing him because she feels guilty for having been the catalyst in this relationship with his father but if she just realized that this isn't about you this is about my father being childish then there there's no reason to fight about this but his father is the one making the mistake disowning him yeah for no reason if they were still on friendly terms there's no way that Jess wouldn't fly out there immediately to do this yeah. performance Molly essentially tells Jess that if he doesn't at least try to reconnect with his father, that this guilt will haunt their relationship forever because she'll constantly feel terrible about it. We cut to the synagogue the following day, and Jess is performing as the cantor for Yom Kippur. After the festivities, he tries to speak with his father, who still hasn't forgiven him. Even nope. though he came out here, he, yeah. he did this, he sacrificed his point to come out here and sing the songs, and uh, he still won't even talk to him. He reminds his father that Yom Kippur is a day for forgiveness. Like, that's the whole point of this day. And you're still not willing to do that? And his father starts to walk away from him until he reveals, you know what? Here's a, here's my weapon of mass destruction. I have a son. You have a grandson. Here's a picture of him. And he says, Chaim Rabinovich, sixth generation. It's not a sin to marry someone you love, Pop. Look, he's even got Mama's smile. I understand. You have no son, so you have no grandson. Well, you're wrong. You're wrong. And I'm sorry for you. For both of us. He forces the picture into his father's hands and he walks away. He doesn't even make it the whole way down the hall before his father calls after him. Not only Mama's smile, your eyes Papa welcomes Jess back into his life and they hug. But the music turns weirdly dark at the end of this scene. I was like, yeah. what is happening? Is yeah. he, like, are we going to cut to a funeral? <laughs> we cut to the night of the performance of Zany Gray's special. And Jess is on stage performing America again, the song that started the film. Molly and his father are in the audience clapping along throughout. And we freeze frame him on stage and fade to an illustration of the freeze frame before credits roll. And that's the end of our film. This was directed for some time by Sidney J. Fury, who was fired from the film and also fired earlier this year from Night of the Juggler. (laughs) He successfully completed as director on Iron Eagles 1, 2, and 4. Nice. The Ipcris File and Superman 4, The Quest for Peace. 
not to mention Ladybugs. All right. Director Richard Fleischer is a very established director that took over, having helmed 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Fantastic Voyage, Dr. Doolittle, Tora, 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 and Soylent Green before this. So dating back a ways. Um, and after this film, he went on to direct Amityville 3D, Conan the Destroyer, and Red Sonja. Playwright Samuel Rafelson, he has many screenwriting and story credits, beginning with the first jazz singer in 1927. After that, he wrote the screenplays for Trouble in Paradise, 1940s The Shop Around the Corner, based on a 1937 Hungarian play called Parfumery, a film which was remade in 1949 as In the Good Old Summertime, and much later, in 1998, as You've Got Mail. That's what I was going to say. It was like, I I knew the connection, but I I love Shop Around the Corner, and I knew that it got made into You Got Mail. I didn't know it came from something else originally. It came from a play, and there was a movie between them. I didn't know that either. I didn't know any of that. He also wrote the screenplay for 1943's Heaven Can Wait, starring Don Amici and Gene Tierney, who we'll discuss in more detail in our next episode. Though it shares a title, it is not at all related to Henry Siegel's 38 stage play Heaven Can Wait, which was adapted into Here Comes Mr. Jordan, or its 47 sequel, Down to Earth, or its 78 remake, Heaven Can Wait, or the 1980 remake of sequel Down to Earth, entitled Xanadu, or the 2001 (laughs) remake of Heaven Can Wait, inexplicably named after its sequel Down to Earth. (laughs) Rafelson also wrote Suspicion for Hitchcock. Writer Stephen H. Foreman is credited as adapting the play to a screenplay. He doesn't have many credits, but evidently he wrote a script of the stage play that was then rewritten by Herbert Baker. Herbert Baker has mostly TV credits. Uh, He does have some features I didn't recognize peppered through his IMDb page. The only one I did recognize was The Girl Can't Help It with Jane Mansfield and Tom Ewell. Uh, The Jazz Singer was his final credit, and he passed away in 83 at the age of 63. Neil Diamond played Jess Robin slash Yusel Rabinovich. Primarily a singer-songwriter best known for his songs Sweet Caroline and America, which I did not realize was an original song written for this film. Yeah, I didn't know that either. I was surprised. Because I knew that song well. I had no idea that it came from this. Jess Robin is the only fictional character that he's ever played other than fictional versions of himself in Lost and Found, Saving Silverman, and Keeping Up with the Steins. He also scored a Golden Globe for his performance of the score on Jonathan Livingston Seagull. So he has a Golden Globe and a Razzie. Lawrence Olivier was Cantor Rabinovich. He's Crassus in Spartacus. He's Maxim de Winter in Hitchcock's Rebecca. He played an elderly Nazi hunter, Ezra Lieberman, in The Boys from Brazil. He stars opposite Michael Caine in Sleuth. And he's also a terrible dentist, Christian Schell, in Marathon Man. Is it safe? Yes, it's safe. It's very safe. So safe you wouldn't believe it. Is it safe? We'll have next year. And we'll see him next year as Zeus in Clash of the Titans. I was curious if Laurence Olivier was Jewish because Neil Diamond is. is. Yes. And, you know, and, and, and proud of it. And I just was curious if they actually cast all, like, all Jewish cast for the, you know. I know a lot of critics had a problem with his performance of the, the uh, old Europe accent that he was doing. Yeah. But I don't know if he came from a Jewish background. I would have guessed that he wasn't, that he was probably Catholic. Anyways, but I was maybe just, that's I was just, just because curious. I think Art Carney is Catholic and he still looks like <laughs> Art Carney in this movie to me. What about, can you look up Barry Manilow? Does he have any Jewish heritage? Because if not, it would be a very weird choice to replace Neil Diamond with Barry Manilow. Yes, Barry Manilow comes from a Jewish background. Okay. I don't know if he practices or anything, but right. his, his family, his heritage is. By the way, there was a joke on set that I don't believe at all, but there's a scene where... Uh, Neil Diamond needed to be angry and kind of wreck stuff. And when the director asked him how he got in character for his rage, he told them that he had them play a Barry Manilow song for him <laughs> because nothing made him angrier than a Barry Manilow song, which just sounds like a guy trying to rip on another guy who has his job and that he competes with. Lucy Arnaz played Molly Bell. As her name might suggest, she is the daughter of Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz. She doesn't have a lot of credits that I recognize, but she does show up in an episode of Will and Grace that was essentially a love letter to I Love Lucy entitled We Love Lucy. In the episode, she's credited as Factory Boss, which I can only assume is at a chocolate factory where they're eating a bunch of chocolates off Mm. of a factory line. Caitlin Adams played Rivka Rabinovich. She's also Patty Bernstein in The Jerk. 
Franklin AJ played Bubba. We just had him in Stir Crazy talking to Richard Pryor about the doctors taking a testicle by mistake. He's Maya Rudolph's dad in Bridesmaids, Samuel Fields on Deadwood, and a detective in The Burbs. Mike Kellen played Leo. This guy looks extremely familiar to me, but I've only seen a couple of his credits, and I barely remember God told me to, so I must be recognizing him from Sleepaway Camp. But he seems like he's going a little overboard with his accent for the film. Yeah. Luther Waters played Teddy. He's an actual backup vocalist with performance credits in Mean Green Mother from Outer Space from Little Shop of Horrors, Circle of Life from The Lion King, and perhaps most importantly, Bam, 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 Eye to Eye and Stand Out from a Goofy movie. He's a backup vocalist on those tracks. Oren Waters played Mel based on the shared last name. I'm assuming they're siblings and they have a lot of the same credits. Uh, specifically, all the credits I mentioned for Luther also apply to Oren. John Witherspoon played the MC at the Cinderella Club. He's Mr. Jones in Hollywood Shuffle and the Friday movies. He was Pops on the Wayans Brothers TV series and in Little Man. And he's the voice of Granddad on the Boondocks. He's very funny. Yeah. I love him in the Friday movies. Uh, Dale Robinette played Tommy. He was Irvington in Gorp earlier this year, but now he's mostly a still photographer. We went over a lot of those credits in our review of Gorp, if you're willing to sit through that. David Coburn played the Bar Mitzvah Boy. Did you look into this guy? I did not. He's the voice of Donnie Duditz Wahlberg in the New Kids on the Block animated series. <laughs> he also played Walter Potter, one of the kids on the Harry and the Hendersons TV series, live action TV series. And most importantly, by our powers combined, he is the voice of Captain Planet. <laughs> nice. The kid who doesn't want to sing at his bar mitzvah is the voice of Captain Planet. I am Captain Planet. That kid was an amazing singer. Yeah. His, he was He was talented. doing great. Yeah. Yeah. But... Yeah, I'm like, I knew there was a, a Harry and the Hendersons TV show, but New Kids on the Block TV show? I have to look this up. I had them on VHS as a kid. Did you really? I don't know why, <laughs> but I definitely did. Me and Mikey watched those oh a lot. God. I am Googling this. That must have been like a rare occasion because he's literally credited as Donnie Wahlberg on yeah, the show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like for the Ghostbusters show... They weren't allowed to use likenesses or names of the characters. Like they, that's why the characters on the real Ghostbusters animated series don't actually look like the characters from right, the movie, right? Because um, they couldn't get likeness rights, even though it's adapted from the movie. Mm -hmm. um, but the fact that they just called the character Donnie Wahlberg and not just Donnie or something like that means they must have had full life rights to the characters. I have looked it up, and now I want to watch it. So I'll, I think I'll we're gonna it. we need I'll to reinstitute it. Cartoon Club and yeah. start watching crappy old just TV that. shows again. <laughs> Only that. We'll pretend it's a Cartoon Club, but it's actually just it's new just kids New on Kids the on the animated New Kids on the Block. <laughs> Ernie Hudson played the heckler. We had him very briefly in Octagon earlier this year. He's Albrecht in Crow. He's Captain Monroe Kelly in Congo. And he's Winston Zeddemore in Ghostbusters 1 and 2. If there's a steady paycheck in it, I'll believe anything you say. James Karen played Barney Callahan. He was Mr. Teague in Poltergeist, Frank in Return of the Living Dead, Wally Brown in Mulholland Drive, and Mac Churchill in The China Syndrome. He's so great. I, I just uh, introduced my niece to Return of the Living Dead. Oh, okay. Because that movie is so crazy. Still haven't seen it. I, so. I hate zombie movies, but this is one I'm willing to watch because it's just so bizarre. I've only seen basically just that tar man shot. Okay. Which is phenomenal. But James Karen gives the performance of a lifetime. He is so great. Yeah. Well, I'm excited for it. Uh, those are all the credits I had for this one. Jess, do you want to tell me about some editors that I neglected no i was sorry i was still stuck on new kids on the block because, oh, i thought you were gonna be like no because i was poor rabbits because <laughs> i was looking it up and it was well i mean i i, I did want to say like we've i think we've talked about him before but uh seymour cassell uh is uncredited in this film is he yeah uh, he's just his character just effect is unnamed synagogue? yeah uh we had him earlier this year in uh uh oh it was a 70s review of a man called horse yeah 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 uh yeah, we don't have anything. Oh, no, he was in Mountain Men as Labonte. Oh, really? That's funny. Those two movies are very similar. Are we sure that I'm not confused? Uh, you could be. Maybe I am. But, uh, yeah, so he was in there. Um, yeah, it is Mountain Men because it, it ends with him with, on the funeral pyre in the middle of the river. Yeah, right. That's for sure. Yeah, it was Mountain Men, not uh, Man Called Horse. Uh, so I want to talk about our editor here. <laughs> okay, what do we got? <laughs> 
So it's uh, his name is Thelma Schoenmacher. No, his name is Maury Weintraub. Okay, that sounds uh, familiar, actually. He his first editing credit that I have on here is Funny Girl. Oh, okay. Um, and we also have Black Marble earlier this year, which we hadn't covered because we oh, okay. couldn't find it. Yeah, we'll be covering that next year because I have that now. Uh, he was also a music editor on the movie in 1966 called The Professionals, which I really like. Uh, my father likes that movie, so I watched it a lot. Is that the sequel to the Jean Renault film from way uh, later? Yeah, no. No, but it's, it's pretty cool. Um, it's about hired guns. Ralph Bellamy hires Burt Lancaster, Lee Marvin, and Robert Ryan to go into Mexico to get his wife, who was kidnapped by Jack Palance. Oh, good. Um, but she wasn't kidnapped. She is in love with this guy. Oh, and, and so it's like a Bunny Lebowski situation. Yeah, a little bit. But you know, and and they have a change of heart when they realize, oh wait, she wants, she doesn't want to go back. She kidnapped herself, dude. Yeah. Um, but it's pretty great. Uh, it's just a great cast. All right. Yeah. Uh, up or down, Jess? What are you thinking? As a down. Yeah. I think it's a down for me too. As much as I liked the music, and because I do like his music, yeah, no, I yeah. do too. Um, I think his voice is amazing. Uh, this, I enjoyed the songs. Did you think that when he was in blackface that he was trying to do a black voice? It does feel like he's putting like this grindy sound to the singing more for that song than I for mean, any of the other songs. It might have just been the style of the song. I know, but it's just weird that it was only that song where he was singing in a different voice. Yeah, I don't know. The music was fine. But I didn't really care for anything else about this film. Yeah. Um, my problem with it is that for a musician biopic, you have to show the protagonist doing something more destructive and evil yeah. than just occasionally getting grumpy with people for screwing up. trying to pursue his dreams. Yeah. Uh, he needs to cheat on his wife. He doesn't need to wait for her to leave him and then complete a marriage ceremony before consummating his relationship with the new girl mm -hmm. he should have done that before that so she weird. even came out <laughs> first of all and he should do some drugs or drink some alcohol because otherwise this character's too good of a guy and it's not a realistic human being except for leaving his son for a year well he didn't know that the son existed the shitty part is leaving for a year in general yeah but yeah. even then it's just like bad friending you know it's not like he wasn't being an absentee father on purpose because no one ever told him that he had a son. Yeah. And if Bubba had this magical shining power to go find him wherever he <laughs> was, he should have used it earlier <laughs> during his child developmental years. This kid's not going to grasp object permanence for an extra couple of days. What I, one thing that I don't like, and it's a really stupid thing, but the last shot is like a caricature, caricature freeze frame right. of him that they use for the poster. But they don't. They don't use the same freeze frame. The poster and this freeze frame are not the same. Yeah, well, it's supposed to be the same. It's not the same. It's similar. But it's, it's not similar, the same. but it's not the same. That's weird. I didn't compare them because I just assumed it was the exact same graph. No, he he he's and the poster. He's got his arms like way up in the air versus the end of the movie. He just has he, one arm up. Yeah, in in the poster he has one arm way up, but in the in the movie he's got it outstretched away from him. Oh, okay. Hmm. Almost like a faith healer reaching forward i compel the yeah. demons out of you this movie doesn't work. i kill you covid19 <laughs> have you seen that video no of uh of what's that televangelist guy's name uh he's the most ridiculous oh, one where he's one. just yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> i compel you covid19 you get out of that body yeah, this was back in like you know march yeah. <laughs> glad we won <laughs> thank god he solved it for everybody Whew. that was a close uh, one. i haven't gotten it <laughs> yeah well, you have him to thank. Uh, I hope you buy his bag of magic water or whatever he's selling today. Is it asparagus water? I that's all. So. I, that's all I ever drink. It's uh, it's actually uh, urine that I've injected into rabbits. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a down. It's a three way down because, like we said, despite the good music, uh, it just follows the bones of a uh, classic uh, story about a musician that comes from nothing and, and succeeds, but there's no conflict uh, outside of his relationship with his father. And he doesn't even have to, he never has to choose between like, he could literally do exactly what his father wants and be a cantor and be a famous musician at the same time. Cause those goals are never in conflict with each other. Yes. Um, but yeah. Um, what about letterboxed Jess? What are you thinking for this one? I haven't even started to list it. I have it pretty low. Because I don't ever need to see this movie again. 
I have it at 142. It is below the fiendish plot of Dr. Fu Manchu and above Christmas Evil. All right. That's pretty low. Richard. Uh, I have it at 103. Okay. Um, This puts it below Coast to Coast, but above Stardust Memories. Okay. Um, I have it at 119, which is right below Honeysuckle Rose, because uh, the Honeysuckle Rose story was a little bit better, but I like the music in both. And it's above Melvin and Howard, which I thought was kind of silly and dumb. Yeah. Um, I think that's everything we have for this one. If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share with us, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd, where, as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. Please consider rating us on iTunes to help people find the show, and if you take the time to leave us a review, we will thank you personally in an upcoming episode. If you're feeling especially generous, you can also support the show through Patreon.com slash VintageVideoPodcast. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing The Mirror Cracked, which IMDb describes like so. Miss Jane Marple, oh, her first name's Jane, interesting, comes to solve the mystery when a local woman is poisoned and a visiting movie star seems to have been the intended victim. We leave you now with the trailer for The Mirror Cracked. The quaint village of St. Mary Mead, England, home of Agatha Christie's extraordinary sleuth, Miss Marple, is in for some excitement. Hollywood has invaded, and a great American star is about to make her comeback. But she's not the only one. A little bit closer, please, ladies. When massive doses of ego... Lola, dear, you know there are really only two things I dislike about you. Really? What are they? Your face. Mix with lethal traces of poison. There's no business like show business. It's poison! Somebody's trying to kill me, aren't they? I know it. I can feel it. I can almost hear them coming. Danger in the dark. MGM 1932. Against such rave performances, even two of the world's greatest detectives are baffled. Murder is a very dangerous business. If one gets mixed up in it, one must be prepared for the consequences. In fact, they hardly stood a chance. Until the moment... The mirror cracked. Of course. He always did have the class of a toad. And he's putting up the money for your comeback, so you'd better calm down. And putting that proxide floozy into my film. And as the Virgin Queen. Maybe we should bring in Alexander for my hair. Lamb chop, if I told you once, I told you a thousand times, Queen Elizabeth was bald. Not in this movie, she ain't. The idea of someone wanting to murder your wife doesn't bother you? You've been seeing too many Charlie Chan movies, Inspector. We'll be together always. Till death do us part. Why'd you say that? Elizabeth Taylor, Tony Curtis, Kim Novak, Edward Fox, Rock Hudson, Geraldine Chaplin, and Angela Lansbury as Miss Marple. It's very simple. If only one looks at it the proper way. Agatha Christie's mystery classic. The Mirror Cracked. If you guess who done it, you may be next. The world of the cinema, the village, it's all quite the same, really. She could be wrong, you know. She's not. I've seen the picture. The Mirror Cracked. Snake-like son of a... <laughs>